Content note. This episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains references to torture, absolute chaos and confusion, and gaslighting nonsense, um, as well as death. A lot of death. A lot of death. And um, we discussed some fairly heavy philosophical kind of stuff at the beginning, but well, you can skip ahead. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Please join us as we continue with Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 36, The Cellar. So, The Cellar. That um, I wanted to make a joke about how things were headed in a downward direction, but I think we're long past that point. Yeah, that, we, we went way past that a while ago. But yes. But you know, there, there is uh, that old saying that every time I think I've hit rock bottom, someone hands me a shovel. Hmm. There's a, yeah, that's, that's a thing. I am refusing to accept and continue down these puns. I will not lower myself to the standard today. Hey, these puns are beneath me. Okay, we're continuing with the terrible joke. But can you dig it? No, <laughs> I cannot. No, it's it's just yes, yeah, cellar. Hmm. I'm curious about the cellar. It, it's almost like a horror movie. They know what's in the cellar. What it does awful, like movie, awful yeah. thing? Because you know we're at the point in the story now where it's like. Yeah, well, I think we said it last time. I don't see good times ahead. So every no. chapter is probably going to get progressively worse. Yeah, I don't think these things are going well. I mean, I who knows? <laughs> Yesarian might have a uh, a change of attitude. and I don't think Yesarian in this particular case is the issue. I think it's all the others. It's oh, Cat yeah, yeah, Park, no, no. It's um, and all that. I mean, Yesarian is, is, has, has his own issues. Well, oh. it's that thing where, despite how um, frivolous he was regarding, you know, like playing around with the mail and um, attacking authority, the problems were never with the Assyrian. Actually, it reminds me of, the, uh, you know, I had a conversation yesterday over Twitter about, you know, it's like, while as an individual, I try my best to be kind and not wasteful and all these things. It's like, mm. there's that idea that, there's nothing I can really do that that is in any sense any kind of comparison to what the large systems of our world are doing. I agree and disagree. I agree that for there to be a profound, long-lasting change, we need systemic change. Absolutely. And that it's an overall thing. And I don't also, again, I don't believe that as individuals, our efforts are not worth anything. I think they make a difference. The thing is that if we see the system as an outcome only of like, like a cumulative outcome of people, if we think the system is pure, like systems, and or if, let's replace, replace a system with society, which consists of systems and institutions and individuals. If we say that it's just, uh, it's just, it's only society is made up of individuals and that's it. Or institutions, and that's it. Institutions are just the sum part of all the people that are within it. That's one approach. But then if you see things as being actually more synergistic, 
So, in in the case, <laughs> we're going back to, oh God, 1984 moment. So, one plus one equals two is how you would normally treat, say, an institution or indi- so one, one individual and another individual equals two individuals who can form an institution, for example. That's an institution now. And the institution is just the sum of their parts. Mm. Whereas if you see it in a different way, which is a synergistic, because the interaction between two individuals creates its own dynamic as well. Mm. So something more comes out of it, which means that, yes, if you just looked at your individual actions and you thought about them as only, well, in the grand scheme of things, there's nothing like it's, it's very little. It's not necessarily true. In the grand scheme of things, as people shift their behavior, their attitude, their approach, it like you don't know who you're going to interact with and how that's going to affect others. So the effect of synergy is the tricky bit. But the only way you get synergy is by being engaged and involved in the society in which you are living. So you only can have institutional change if you are contributing somehow to the culture that is within that institution. Is that making sense? Yeah, there, there's that old saying that, yeah, you change cannot come from outside the system. No. Which, well, which I, I mean... Yeah. I think in, you know, if a meteor were to hit this planet, that's going to definitely Slightly shake different. up all the systems. Change is going to come from outside. But yeah. in, in the absence of a cataclysmic event. Yeah. <laughs> although looking at the last two years, as I say. Yeah, I was about to say, like, no, I think the pressure that is exerted on a system or society or relationships or whatever it is out there, the pressure that comes from external forces, whether they are controllable or not, some, you, can't, like, you can't control the cyclone, mm. but you can prepare and you can have plans and you can have approaches that adapt to the needs of that area. Yeah. At the same time, if you are cultivating, so in a, in a say, the village where they've, for the last 10, 20 years, um, they've planned, they've got their emerg- two villages, they both have emergency systems in place because they know that cyclones are likely or whatever, or hurricanes for, you know. But what they do is... In one village, there's a whole thing about, hey, because we have our vulnerable populations, we need to make sure that our vulnerable populations are, are addressed. And so we have, um, we get to know each other, we get to know each other as, as, and get to know each other as people and find out what works in that particular area. Whereas in the other one, they're like, well, we know we need to move all those people here and there. And that's that. There's, there's, there's one where you're informing yourself because you're actually adjusting your plans as informed by what is going on in that area. And that requires individual collaboration and communication. Whereas the other one is like a, we know we need to have a plan. Let's have a, you guys make a decision and we'll just stick to it. Well, and it might a, a not one be size fits all approach. Yes, without being informed of the reality of what people are going through. And then people turn around complaining, why didn't they think about this? And why didn't they think about that? And yes, of course, the institutions and organizations have ultimately a responsibility to be informed and to think about these things. But they can only be informed and think about these things if there is a relationship between individuals that allows for that flow of of insight as well. You can't have it without... So, so it's... I agree that as an individual, sometimes it feels like, well, in the grand scheme of things, what can I do to actually make a make a mark or have an effect on people around me or on the society, the world, the bigger issues? But a different way of seeing it is that you're doing both by being engaged and being conscious of the bigger issues and trying to think of the qualities and, and actions that you can work on 
you're promoting the things that need to be developed and refined and work together and, 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 you know, see what I mean? It's, you're part of a bigger thing. let, Let me put it this way, because I'm not fully convinced of that, right? But despite that, I do believe in that the only change we can have on other people is through inspiration, that we live in such a way that kind of who we are kind of shines outward. Mm. And so even despite that disconnect, it's like, well, no, I'm still trying to work on myself consistently to be mm-hmm. less wasteful, to be more caring, to be more compassionate. These yeah. things, these we talked a lot before about holding on to values and building yourself yeah. up around certain values. And I do have certain values that I, I strive to improve myself on. Mm-hmm. And even if, you know, I think there, I cannot have an effect on the larger scale, it's still, I just want to be that person. And mm-hmm. because I do believe in inspiration, I think, well, me working on this, maybe it will have an effect. Maybe who I am will uh, will shine outwards and yeah. and and change things for the positive. But but even if it doesn't, I know who I want to work towards. So yeah. that's almost a, a worthwhile end in itself. It is, and it is, and I think that that's the thing is that it's not necessarily about how we are perceived by others that should determine why we do the things. But we can be conscious of the impact that we have, we could have on others and how we interact with each other. Immediately, as you are working on yourself as a person, how you interact with others, be this the lady at the cashier, uh, the, the cashier lady, be this um, the person you walk past on the street and one of their bags, I mean, the, the typical example is that their grocery bags fall down, you help them pick it up because that's the values you live by. They mightn't, but you do. Yeah. And that affects how you interact with other people. Yeah. And immediately we are more, and, and the, I, the, the reason I was saying that institutions and systems and society are more than the parts of the whole. Like if you have a generous person and you have a selfish person, it, it, you know, if you put them together, it's not like they're, they're who they are or those qualities nullify each other. Mm. Because they're, how they interact with each other, how they manage to cope with each other's traits and personalities and strengths and weaknesses, create something different, create something new as well. Mm. And of course, you'd hope to, to build on something. If you have strengths and you bring them together, it brings a whole other la- layer, mm. like a whole other level. Um, I think, I guess from a biological perspective, that's biology, that's where my brain kind of goes. That we're never just a whole bunch of, okay, there's these cells and these cells, and then that adds up. The systems influence each other. The organs have an yeah. effect on each other. The, the one chemical reaction here is important for another part of the body there. It's like nothing we do is in an um, is a isolate. And, um, and l- l- let, let me just yeah. uh, say, you know, despite what I've said about how it, it's more about working on me than trying to, I guess... Um, uh, affect the world at large. Yeah. I, I, I am fully in agreement with what you said there. I, do, I don't think we can do anything alone. I think we, no. we need each other. And, and you know, yeah. uh, I, I'm in kind of a, a situation at the moment. I won't go into it too much for our listeners. But, you know, I'm I'm going through a move and I've just started a new job. And the, the circumstances that led to a lot of... Well, let me... I'm, I'm eventually going to end up in a much better situation than where I am. 
and there there was some touch and go with just what was going to happen. But now that things look like they're going to change for the better, I am overwhelmingly grateful just looking at how I have this wonderful support network of people mm. who care about me and are helping me. Um, yeah. Rue Ru is one of them. And yeah, just just friends and family and uh, community, you know, yeah. just 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 that 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 uh, idea that um, I'm, uh, you know, I do feel blessed you know, w- without any religious uh, yeah. meaning attached to that word. It's 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 you, you yeah. There's a gratitude. I think the only the the meaning of blessed, if we want to go into it, it's like it, it's just that recognition of appreciation of where you're at mm. and knowing what other options like knowing the 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 challenges the difficulties but then going wow you know this could have gone very very differently and it hasn't and it's and, because there's that network and then of course yeah. because my brain is what it is i also have to fight the guilt like i'm yeah. ending up in this position and so many people are struggling so hard right <laughs> well that's the thing though like it that's I don't think it's a bad thing to think about be appreciative of what you got and recognize that others don't have that mm. situation and then you 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 can't kind of fix everything for everyone that's no, not no, a no, no. not a reasonable way of saying oh and then if they don't get support then I don't deserve it no no everyone deserves to be supported that's mm. that's not the mm. issue I think the issue is like well what is the little thing that I can do rather and not just coming out of a place of alleviating guilt but because mm. you understand what they're going through out of c- compassion and empathy. Yeah. We act to do what little thing we can do, even if it's, you know, making sure that uh, donating clothes to the homeless and making sure that there's something that you can give away or volunteering at the library with literacy programs. I'm, I'm, I'm talking, but, but whatever the little thing is or the big picture thing is that you want to do, that you do it. Even if it's helping, yeah, again, helping someone pick up the groceries off the floor. It doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. Hmm. You're contributing to the, and, and what you're saying, community. Community just really means Having each other's there. backs. Yeah, being there for one another, coming together, bringing together. And it doesn't mean that everyone will necessarily do things the same way. I mean, hmm. you, in our village structures that we used to have, you know, you'd have the blacksmith and his apprentice and you'd have the the healer or at least the herbal lady or the herbal man if they didn't burn them as a witch. But, you know, the, the herbal herbal person or the person who knew remedies. Um, you'd have the the someone, the elders who would try and provide support and wisdom. If they had literacy, you'd have someone who would be telling stories, maybe if they didn't have reading, you know. So there's always something going on. And everyone, we would trade, we would barter, and then the economic side of things also came in. But there was a relationship, and everyone knew how to contribute their part. I'm not saying that we now go back to, you have your role and just stick to it kind of attitude. We don't have that, because now everyone is working in a, in a multitude of ways. It's that we need to remember to value that whatever the little thing that you can do to contribute to to the environment in which you live, the people with whom you interact... You're doing like that sense of connection with another fellow human being that is beyond a trans- transactionary kind of level. Mm. It's not a, I did this, I deserve this, therefore, tit for tat, mm. or I've got this so I can give this. It's a, huh, other people are suffering. What can I do to help alleviate their suffering? And I was going, well, I'm suffering too. What can I do? Like, how, who can I connect with to support one another? Who can I feel safe 
to entrust this 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 difficulty I'm going through. And 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 none of this is an immediate thing. None of this. This is a cultural shift. It's going to take, as we said before, generations to shift away from. Just well, sur- and it, it, not surviving. only to shift away, but the old ways. I'm putting in finger quotes are going to fight any change oh, yeah, yeah. tooth and nail every step. We're, we're, of the we're way. resistant to change, but I mean, uh, uh, arguably, the things that we're we're now embracing in the name of modernization. Um, that was actually the challenge. Mm-hmm. We embraced a whole bunch of stuff in the name of modernization, but then we failed to uh, evaluate the things that actually are beneficial. So we failed to. So, so all in the name of modernization means you strip away and just discard everything. The whole baby with the bathwater expression, which is you throwing out the baby and the bathwater at the same time. We have to actually, instead of being, I guess, I guess it's less knee jerk reaction and more well reflecting. What are the current circumstances? What is working? What isn't working? It's oddly enough, it's a more scientific process, but with a human, the human element of compassion and care and consideration and thinking about the impact of things. So it's, it's a scientific process. None of us might, know how to do it. And it might just be a, a case of time as well, because yeah. I'm thinking how, you know, I don't think human beings have necessarily uh, adapted to social media or the internet at large what that means for us as species and it might take a few generations even before we begin to be able to reckon with uh, this advancement it was weird because there was a i told you a little bit there was a presentation that i attended um last week one of the comments that came was uh, well what about social media and the internet and all that stuff and the and the response was this is from one of the university heads went well We've always had access to information. The speed with which we're accessing mm. information, that's different. The fact that more people can access all sorts of information and may not necessarily have the, the um, refined uh, knowledge or the framework with which to view said information, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. So, so there's different things, of course. But in terms of a whole bunch of information being available and interactions, that's always existed to some level. It's about um, what we're valuing about it. What do we value? Where is the human connection here? We discarded a lot of things, again, modernization. We discarded, for the sake of, of affluence, we discarded uh, and we sacrificed a lot of uh, family relationships for ease, mm-hmm. yeah? For uh, comfort, for ease. It was like, oh, it's too hard. Have, you know, can't deal with it. And it well, doesn't also- mean... I was going to say just to survive, uh, the family yeah. unit can't exist as it is at the moment. No. And, and, and a lot of the time when we look at a family unit, we have either an extremely uh, like authoritarian, instructive kind of family structure, yeah, or you have the extreme permissive family structure where whatever as, whatever as long as I'm happy. There's like, oh, well, I have to have kids because, look, it's expected. Yeah, look, it would be nice to have kids. Like Sometimes you're having kids because you want to have mini-me's and whatever. Like So the, the motivations behind things it becomes warped and twisted. Uh, for one, it's the family name. Oh, we need someone to carry on the family name. And then you got someone where it's like, look, I just want to have a little best friend. Rather than, hey, I'm raising someone who has their own talents and their own skills. And they are a person that I'm entrusted with. Like, I am given the responsibility of and I will encourage them to foster who they are as a person 
encourage them to develop values. That means that, you know, whatever value system that happens to be the one that works for that particular family and give them, empower them to be, uh, to cope with information and change and make decisions informed and, and decisions and think about the impact. So it's, it, what we're wanting to see depends a lot on how we view, what we view as the purpose of family, what we see as the purpose of an institution, what we see as the purpose of the responsibilities and roles and rights of an individual, all of it. It's like, it's a big topic. And the reason it comes up here is because when you look at in Catch-22... And there we go. Yes, thank you. Catch-22, you have this really odd, just like with all the with all of the books that you seem to pick, there is a, there is like the machine, right? The machine being in 1984, which is um, the, the state. The machine in uh, Brave New World, which was industry. The machine in this one, which is war. I mean, arguably, if you look at Milo, it's war and then it's commerce. But still, it's like it's it's th- there's like these these things, and everyone has, they have their part to play. But it's for the per- like it's all about um, the ele- that hierarchy of elevating those who are on top, mm. those on top trying to make those on bottom basically work for them so that they get what they want at the end of the day. Uh, and and these poor little these poor humans getting chewed up in the machinery of it all, mm. and which is why probably the old the old man in in the old Italian man is just so disdainful of a lot of this stuff. He's like going, look, it's the same story. It's going to happen again and again. It's just it's the same machine. And here's the other thing, he is an old man. Yeah. Uh, in Italy, you know, so God, if he's seventy during World War Two, the last days of World War Two, he's seen quite a few wars in his time yep yes um, he would have seen a lot and just just the idea that he survived all of that mm. and yeah surviving all that would make one deeply cynical yes uh, and yeah and i think um and then of course if you have a contrast of having a conversation with nately who is incredibly uh, idealistic and just and and now is contrast. dead well yes that idealism not good uh, in that sense, idealism in itself is not a bad thing, but idealism needs to be informed of the reality and it, with a lot of humility. If, if like, just to add this disclaimer, whenever I'm saying any of the stuff, I think I know that I could be 3 million percent, if there was a thing, I could be completely 100 percent. I'm never going to assume that I'm right and I have all the answers and my reality is exactly, you know, perfectly understood and what, heck no. I, every breath i take i'm constantly going Ooh! every move you make every breath i take every move i make i will be hopefully growing too uh but yeah we ch- we change and and grow and it's because you can't do that without letting go of things that aren't working and recognizing that you never know everything there's no such thing no one mm. human being knows absolutely everything but ruth so, yeah. can't you see <laughs> <laughs> this this hope belongs to me. Anyway, um, we're gonna stop using lyrics now. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's 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 odd. Like I was thinking about it. I don't think humans are made for a heavily mechanical approach to their relationships in society. We're not computers. We're not computers. We are not cogs. We're not designed 
we're designed to 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 grow we're we're more plants we're closer to a plant than we are a rock that's the way i see it um weird expression but you know if you if you see people as like look at their their strengths that's all saying look at the strengths look at their talents look at their abilities and and support them in fostering those and applying those for everyone if it's not just about you like you might be the best artist ever but you only paint for yourself or you only paint for accolades as opposed to painting to uh, express something that is uplifting and strengthening and encouraging others to do so as well you know different okay but um it going back to what happened last chapter uh, i did mention nately dying yes. and uh, dobbs was in he was either in the same plane or he his plane went down as well with obviously a lot of other people were in there but um we didn't those were the only two that were named it seems for a long time now every chapter has taken place preceding the previous chapter what a concept <laughs> that chapter is going a sequential <laughs> line but um yeah so the fact this is called the seller the fact it's come just after milo has taught cathcart into not only raising the missions again but doing so to force him to fly more missions but other men are flying his missions for him yeah it's just milo's a piece of work mm -hmm. um, and all of this based on a um misplaced idea from Ysarian that the best way to help Nately was to confide in Milo. Yeah, although that's... Yeah, the whole thing with... Ysarian shouldn't have said anything to Milo, but I think also Ysarian isn't necessarily working with the full... Mm. The, the, was it, not playing with the full deck right now. Yep. So, uh, uh, yeah. shall we see what lies in the cellar? Yes. Chapter 36, The Cellar. Nately's death almost killed the chaplain. Chaplain Shipman was seated in his tent, laboring over his paperwork and his reading spectacles, when his phone rang and news of the mid-air collision was given to him from the field. His insides turned at once to dry clay. His hand was trembling as he put the phone down. His other hand began trembling. The disaster was too immense to contemplate. Twelve men killed. How ghastly! How very very awful. His feeling of terror grew. He prayed instinctively that Yesarian, Nately, Hungry Joe, and his other friends would not be listed among the victims, then berated himself repentantly, for to pray for their safety was to pray for the death of other young men he did not even know. It was too late to pray, yet that was all he knew how to do. His heart was pounding with a noise that seemed to be coming from somewhere outside, and he knew he would never sit in a dentist's chair again, never glance at a surgical tool, never witness an automobile accident or hear a voice shout at night without experiencing the same violent thumping in his chest and dreading that he was going to die. He would never watch another fistfight without fearing he was going to faint and crack his skull open on the pavement or suffer a fatal heart attack or cerebral hemorrhage. He wondered if he would ever see his wife again or his three small children. He wondered if he ever should see his wife again, now that Captain Black had planted in his mind such strong doubts about the fidelity and character of all women. There were so many other men, he felt, who could prove more satisfying to her sexually. When he thought of death now, 
he always thought of his wife, and when he thought of his wife, he always thought of losing her. In another minute, the chaplain felt strong enough to rise and walk with glum reluctance to the tent next door for Sergeant Wickham. They drove in Sergeant Wickham's jeep. The chaplain made fists of his hands to keep them from shaking as they lay in his lap. He ground his teeth together and tried not to hear as Sergeant Wickham chirruped exultantly over the tragic event. Twelve men killed meant twelve more form letters of condolence that could be mailed in one bunch to the next of kin over Colonel Cathcart's signature, giving Sergeant Wickham hope of getting an article on Colonel Cathcart into the Saturday Evening Post in time for Easter. This was there. Um, I don't think it will be the reason, like, if they do get into the Saturday Evening mm-hmm. Post, it probably won't be for a good reason. Mm-hmm. This incompetent commander. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And uh, just, it, I had forgotten myself, but yeah, uh, the chaplain definitely has uh, like a psychosis kind of hypochondria, isn't it? He's... This, I think he's got intrusive thoughts. That, that was yes, that was like, it. That was it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very, which is not surprising given the environment that they're in. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. At the field, a heavy silence prevailed, overpowering emotion like a ruthless, insensate spell, holding in thrall the only beings who might break it. The chaplain was in awe. He had never beheld such a great, appalling stillness before. Almost two hundred tired, gaunt downcast men stood holding their parachute packs in a somber and unstirring crowd outside the briefing room, their faces staring blankly in different angles of stunned dejection. They seemed unwilling to go, unable to move. The chaplain was acutely conscious of the faint noise his footsteps made as he approached. His eyes searched hurriedly, frantically, through the immobile maze of limp figures. He spied the Assyrian finally with a feeling of immense joy, and then his mouth gaped open slowly in unbearable horror as he noted the Assyrian's vivid, beaten, grimy look of deep, drugged despair. He understood at once, recoiling in pain from the realization and shaking his head with a protesting and imploring grimace that Nately was dead. The knowledge struck him with a numbing shock. A sob broke from him. The blood drained from his legs, and he thought he was going to drop. Nately was dead. All hope that he was mistaken was washed away by the sound of Nately's name emerging with recurring clarity now from the almost inaudible babble of murmuring voices that he was suddenly aware of for the first time. Nately was dead. The boy had been killed. A whimpering sound rose in the chaplain's throat and his jaw began to quiver. His eyes filled with tears, and he was crying. He started toward Yusarian on tiptoe to mourn beside him and share his wordless grief. At that moment, a hand grabbed him roughly around the arm, and a brusque voice demanded, Chaplain Shipman. He turned with surprise to face a stout, pugnacious colonel with a large head and mustache and a smooth, florid skin. He had never seen the man for. Yes, what is it? The fingers grasping the chaplain's arm were hurting him, and he tried in vain to squirm loose. Come along. The chaplain pulled back in frightened confusion. Where? Why? Who are you, anyway? You'd better come along with us, father, a lean hawk-faced major on the chaplain's other side intoned with reverential sorrow. We're from the government. We want to ask you some questions. What kind of questions? What's the matter? 
Aren't you Chaplain Shipman? demanded the obese colonel. He's the one, Sergeant Wakeham answered. Go on along with them, Captain Black called out to the chaplain with a hostile and contemptuous sneer. Go on into the car if you know what's good for you. Hands were drawing the chaplain away irresistibly. He wanted to shout for help to Yesarian, who seemed too far away to hear. Some of the men nearby were beginning to look at him with awakening curiosity. The chaplain bent his face away with burning shame and allowed himself to be led into the rear of a staff car and seated between the fat colonel with a large pink face and the skinny, unctuous, despondent major. He automatically held a wrist out to each, wondering for a moment if they wanted to handcuff him. Another officer was already in the front seat. A tall MP with a whistle and a white helmet got in behind the wheel. The chaplain did not dare raise his eyes until the closed car had lurched from the area and the speeding wheels were whining on the bumpy blacktop road. Where are you taking me? He asked in a voice soft with timidity and guilt, his gaze still averted. The notion came to him that they were holding him to blame for the mid-air crash and the death of Nately. What have I done? Why don't you keep your traps shut and let us ask the questions, said the colonel. Don't talk to him that way, said the major. It isn't necessary to be so disrespectful. Then tell him to keep his trap shut and let us ask the questions. Father, please keep your trap shut and let us ask the questions, urged the major sympathetically. It will be better for you. It isn't necessary to call me father, said the chaplain. I'm not a Catholic. Neither am I, father, said the major. It's just that I'm a very devout person, and I like to call all men of God father. He doesn't even believe there are atheists in foxholes, the colonel mocked, and nudged the chaplain in the ridge familiarly. Go on, chaplain, tell him. Are there atheists in foxholes? I don't know, sir, the chaplain replied. I've never been in a foxhole. The officer in front swung his head around swiftly with a quarrelsome expression. You've never been in heaven either, have you? But you know there's a heaven, don't you? Or do you, said the colonel. That's a very serious crime you've committed, father, said the major. What crime? We don't know yet, said the colonel, but we're going to find out, and we sure know it's very serious. The car swung off the road at group headquarters with a squeal of tires, slackening speed only slightly, and continued around past the parking lot to the back of the building. The three officers and the chaplain got out. In single file, they ushered him down a wobbly flight of wooden stairs leading to the basement and led him into a damp, gloomy room with a low cement ceiling and unfinished stone walls. There were cobwebs in all the corners. A huge centipede blew across the floor to the shelter of a water pipe. They sat the chaplain in a hard straight back chair that stood behind a small bare table. Please make yourself comfortable, chaplain, invited the colonel cordially, switching on a blinding spotlight and shooting it squarely into the chaplain's face. He placed a set of brass knuckles and box of wooden matches on the table. We want you to relax. The chaplain's eyes bulged out incredulously. His teeth chattered and his limbs felt utterly without strength. He was powerless. They might do whatever they wished to him, he realized. These brutal men might beat him to death right there in the basement, and no one would intervene to save him. No one, perhaps, but the devout and sympathetic major with a sharp face, who set a water tap dripping loudly into a sink and returned to the table to lay a length of heavy rubber hose down beside the brass knuckles. Everything's going to be all right, chaplain, the major said encouragingly. You've got nothing to be afraid of if you're not guilty. What are you so afraid of? You're not guilty, are you? Sure, he's guilty, said the colonel. Guilty as hell. 
Guilty of what? implored the chaplain, feeling more and more bewildered and not knowing which of the men to appeal to for mercy. The third officer wore no insignia and lurked in silence off to the side. What did I do? That's just what we're going to find out, answered the colonel, and he shoved a pad and pencil across the table to the chaplain. Write your name for us, will you? In your own handwriting. My own handwriting? That's right, anywhere on the page. When the chaplain had finished, the colonel took the pad back and held it up alongside a sheet of paper he removed from a folder. See, he said to the major, who had come to his side and was peering solemnly over his shoulder. They're not the same, are they? The major admitted. I told you he did it. Did what? asked the chaplain. Chaplain, this comes as a great shock to me, the major accused in a tone of heavy lamentation. What does? I can't tell you how disappointed I am in you. For what? persisted the chaplain more frantically. What have I done? For this, replied the major, and with an air of disillusioned disgust, tossed down on the table the pad on which the chaplain had signed his name. This isn't your handwriting. The chaplain blinked rapidly with amazement. But of course it's my handwriting. No, it isn't, chaplain. You're lying again. But I just wrote it, the chaplain cried in exasperation. You saw me write it. That's just it, the major answered bitterly. I saw you write it. You can't deny that you did write it. A person who will lie about his own handwriting will lie about anything. What? Okay, yeah. But who lied about my own handwriting, demanded the chaplain, forgetting his fear in the wave of anger and indignation that welled up inside him suddenly. Are you crazy or something? What are you both talking about? We asked you to write your name in your own handwriting, and you didn't do it. But of course I did. In whose handwriting did I write it, if not my own? In somebody else's. Whose? That's just what we're going to find out, threatened the colonel. Talk, chaplain. The chaplain looked from one to the other of the two men with rising doubt and hysteria. That handwriting is mine, he maintained passionately. Where else is my handwriting if that isn't it? Right here, answered the colonel, and looking very superior, he tossed down on the table a photostatic copy of a piece of V-mail in which everything but the salutation, Dear Mary, had been blocked out and on which the censoring officer had written, I long for you tragically, R.O. Shipman, Chaplain, U.S. Army. The colonel smiled scornfully as he watched the chaplain's face turn crimson. Well, chaplain, do you know who wrote that? The chaplain took a long moment to reply. He had recognized the Assyrian's handwriting. No. You can read, though, can't you? The colonel persevered sarcastically. The author signed his name. That's my name there. Then you wrote it, QED, but I didn't write it. That isn't my handwriting either. Then you signed your name in somebody else's handwriting again, the colonel retorted with a shrug. That's all that means. Oh, this is ridiculous, the chaplain shouted, suddenly losing all patience. He jumped to his feet in a blazing fury, both fists clenched. I'm not going to stand for this any longer. Do you hear? Twelve men were just killed, and I have no time for these silly questions. You've no right to keep me here, and I'm not going to stand for it. Without saying a word, the colonel pushed the chaplain's chest hard and knocked him back down into the chair, and the chaplain was suddenly weak and very much afraid again. The major picked up the length of rubber hose and began tapping it menacingly against his open palm. The colonel lifted the box of matches, took one out, and held it poised against the striking surface, watching with glowering eyes for the chaplain's next sign of defiance. The chaplain was pale and almost too petrified to move. 
The bright glare of the spotlight made him turn away finally. The dripping water was louder and almost unbearably irritating. He wished they would tell him what they wanted so that he would know what to confess. He waited tensely as the third officer, at a signal from the colonel, ambled over from the wall and seated himself on the table just a few inches away from the chaplain. His face was expressionless, his eyes penetrating and cold. Turn off the light, he said over his shoulder in a low, calm voice. It's very annoying. The chaplain gave him a small smile of gratitude. Thank you, sir. And the drip too, please. Leave the drip, said the officer. That doesn't bother me. He tugged up the legs of his trousers a bit as though to preserve their natty crease. Chaplain, he asked casually, of what religious persuasion are you? I'm an Anabaptist, sir. That's a pretty suspicious religion, isn't it? Suspicious, inquired the chaplain in a kind of innocent daze. Why, sir? Well, I don't know a thing about it. You'll have to admit that, won't you? Doesn't that make it pretty suspicious? I don't know, sir, the chaplain answered diplomatically with an uneasy stammer. He found the man's lack of insignia disconcerting and was not even sure he had to say, sir, who was he and what authority had he to interrogate him? Chaplain, I once studied Latin. I think it's only fair to warn you of that before I ask my best question. Doesn't the word Anabaptist simply mean that you're not a Baptist? Oh, no, sir, there's much more. Are you a Baptist? No, sir. Then you are not a Baptist, aren't you, sir? I don't see why you're bickering with me on that point. You've already admitted it. Now, chaplain, to say you're not a Baptist doesn't really tell us anything about what you are, does it? You could be anything or anyone. He leaned forward slightly, and his manner took on a shrewd and significant air. You could even be, he added, Washington Irving, couldn't you? Washington Irving, the chaplain repeated with surprise. Come on, Washington, the corpulent colonel broke in irascibly. Why don't you make a clean breast of it? We know you stole that plum tomato. After a moment's shock, the chaplain giggled with nervous relief. Oh, is that it, he exclaimed. Now I'm beginning to understand. I didn't steal that plum tomato, sir. Colonel Cathcart gave it to me. You can even ask him if you don't believe me. A door opened at the other end of the room, and Colonel Cathcart stepped into the basement as though from a closet. Hello, Colonel. Colonel, he claims you gave him that plum tomato, did you? Why should I give him a plum tomato, answered Colonel Cathcart. Thank you, Colonel. That will be all. It's a pleasure, Colonel, Colonel Cathcart replied, and he stepped back out of the basement, closing the door after him. Well, chaplain, what have you got to say now? He did give it to me, the chaplain hissed in a whisper that was both fierce and fearful. He did give it to me. You're not calling a superior officer a liar, are you, chaplain? Why should a superior officer give you a plum tomato, chaplain? Is that why you tried to give it to Sergeant Wickham, chaplain? Because it was a hot tomato. <laughs> no, 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 the chaplain protested, wondering miserably why they were not able to understand. I offered it to Sergeant Wickham because I didn't want it. Why do you steal it from Colonel Cathcart if you didn't want it? I didn't steal it from Colonel Cathcart. Then why are you so guilty if you didn't steal it? I'm not guilty. Then why would we be questioning you if you weren't guilty? Oh, I don't know, the chaplain groaned, kneading his fingers in his lap and shaking his bowed and anguished head. I don't know. He thinks we have time to waste, snorted the major. Chaplain, resumed the officer without insignia at a more leisurely pace, lifting a typewritten sheet of yellow paper from the open folder. I have a signed statement here from Colonel Cathcart asserting you stole that plum tomato from him. 
He laid the sheet face down on one side of the folder and picked up a second page from the other side. And I have a notarized affidavit from Sergeant Wickham in which he states that he knew the tomato was hot just from the way you tried to unload it on him. I swear to God I didn't steal it, sir, the chaplain pleaded with distress, almost in tears. I give you my sacred word it was not a hot tomato. Chaplain, do you believe in God? Yes, sir, of course I do. That's odd, chaplain, said the officer, taking from the folder another typewritten yellow page, because I have here in my hands now another statement from Colonel Cathcart in which he swears that you refuse to cooperate with him in conducting prayer meetings in the briefing room before each mission. After looking blank a moment, the chaplain nodded quickly with recollection. Oh, that's not quite true, sir, he explained eagerly. Colonel Cathcart gave up the idea himself once he realized enlisted men prayed to the same God as officers. He did what? exclaimed the officer in disbelief. What nonsense, declared the red-faced colonel, and swung away from the chaplain with dignity and annoyance. Does he expect us to believe that? cried the major incredulously. The officer, without insignia, chuckled acidly. Chaplain, aren't you stretching things a bit far now? he inquired with a smile that was indulgent and unfriendly. But sir, it's the truth, sir. I swear it's the truth. I don't see how that matters one way or the other, the officer answered nonchalantly and reached sideways again toward the open folder filled with papers. Chaplain, did you say you did believe in God in answer to my question? I don't remember. Yes, sir, I did say so, sir. I do believe in God. Then that really is very odd, Chaplain, because I have here another affidavit from Colonel Cathcart that states you once told him atheism was not against the law. Do you recall ever making a statement like that to anyone? The chaplain nodded without any hesitation, feeling himself on very solid ground now. Yes, sir, I did make a statement like that. I made it because it's true. Atheism is not against the law. But that's still no reason to say so, chaplain, is it? The officer chided tartly, frowning, and picked up still one more typewritten notarized page from the folder. And here I have another sworn statement from Sergeant Wickham that says you opposed his plan of sending letters of condolence over Colonel Cathcart's signature to the next of kin of men killed or wounded in combat. Is that true? Yes, sir, I did oppose it, answered the chaplain, and I'm proud that I did. Those letters are insincere and dishonest. Their only purpose is to bring glory to Colonel Cathcart. But what difference does that make, replied the officer. They still bring solace and comfort to the families that receive them, don't they? Chaplain, I simply can't understand your thinking process. The chaplain was stumped and at a complete loss for a reply. He hung his head, feeling tongue-tied and naive. The ruddy stout colonel stepped forward vigorously with a sudden idea. Why don't we knock his goddamn brains out? He suggested with robust enthusiasm to the others. Yes, we could knock his goddamn brains out, couldn't we? The hawk-faced major agreed. He's only an Anabaptist. No, we've got to find him guilty first, the officer without insignia cautioned with a languid restraining wave. He slid lightly to the floor and moved around to the other side of the table, facing the chaplain with both hands pressed flat on the surface. His expression was dark and very stern, square and forbidding. Chaplain, he announced with magisterial rigidity, we charge you formally with being Washington Irving and taking capricious and unlicensed liberties in censoring the letters of officers and enlisted men. Are you guilty or innocent? Innocent, sir. The chaplain licked dry lips with a dry tongue and leaned forward in suspense on the edge of his chair. Guilty, said the colonel. Guilty, said the major. Guilty it is, then, remarked the officer without insignia and wrote a word on a page in the folder. Chaplain, he continued looking up, we accuse you also of the commission of crimes and infractions we don't even know about yet. 
guilty or innocent? I don't know, sir. How can I say if you don't tell me what they are? How can we tell you if we don't know? Guilty, decided the colonel. Sure, he's guilty, agreed the major. If they're his crimes and infractions, he must have committed them. Guilty it is, then, chanted the officer without insignia and moved off to the side of the room. He's all yours, colonel. Thank you, commanded the colonel. You did a very good job. He turned to the chaplain. Okay, chaplain, the jig's up. Take a walk. The chaplain did not understand. What do you wish me to do? Go on, beat it. I told you, the colonel roared, jerking the thumb over his shoulder angrily. Get the hell out of here. The chaplain was shocked by his bellicose words and tone, and to his own amazement and mystification, deeply chagrined that they were turning him loose. Aren't you even going to punish me? He inquired with querulous surprise. You're damned right we're going to punish you, but we're certainly not going to let you hang around while we decide how and when to do it. So get going. Hit the road. The chaplain rose tentatively and took a few steps away. I am free to go? For the time being, but don't try to leave the island. We've got your number, chaplain. Just remember that we've got you under surveillance 24 hours a day. It was not conceivable that they would allow him to leave. The chaplain walked toward the exit gingerly, expecting at any instant to be ordered back by a preemptory voice or halted in his tracks by a heavy blow on the shoulder or the head. They did nothing to stop him. He found his way through the stale, dark, dank corridors to the flight of stairs. He was staggering and panting when he climbed out into the fresh air. As soon as he had escaped, a feeling of overwhelming moral outrage filled him. He was furious, more furious at the atrocities of the day than he had ever felt before in his whole life. He swept through the spacious, echoing lobby of the building in a temper of scalding and vindictive resentment. He was not going to stand for it anymore, he told himself. He was simply not going to stand for it. When he reached the entrance, he spied with a feeling of good fortune, Colonel Korn trotting up the wide steps alone. Bracing himself with a deep breath, the chaplain moved courageously forward to intercept him. Colonel, I'm not going to stand for it anymore, he declared with vehement determination, and watched in dismay as Colonel Korn went trotting up by the steps without even noticing him. Colonel Korn! The tubby, loose figure of his superior officer stopped, turned, and came trotting back down slowly. What is it, chaplain? Colonel Korn, I want to talk to you about the crash this morning. It was a terrible thing to happen. Terrible. Colonel Korn was silent a moment, regarding the chaplain with a glint of cynical amusement. Yes, chaplain, it certainly was terrible, he said finally. I don't know how we're going to write this one up without making ourselves look bad. That isn't what I meant, the chaplain scolded firmly without any fear at all. Some of these twelve men had already finished their seventy missions. Colonel Korn laughed. Would it be any less terrible if they had been all new men, he inquired caustically. Once again, the chaplain was stumped. A moral logic seemed to be confounding him at every turn. He was less sure of himself than before when he continued, and his voice wavered. Sir, it just isn't right to make the men in this group fly 80 missions when the men in other groups are being sent home with 50 and 45. We'll take the matter under consideration, Colonel Korn said with bored disinterest and started away. Adios, Padre. What does that mean, sir? The chaplain persisted in a voice turning shrill. Colonel Korn stopped with an unpleasant expression and took a step back down. It means we'll think about it, Padre, he answered with sarcasm and contempt. You wouldn't want us to do anything without thinking about it, would you? No, sir, I suppose not, but you have been thinking about it, haven't you? Yes, Padre, we have been thinking about it. But to make you happy, we'll think about it some more, and you'll be the first person we'll tell if we reach a new decision. And now, adios. Colonel Korn whirled away again and hurried up the stairs. Colonel Korn? 
The chaplain's crymate, Colonel Corn, stopped once more. His head swung slowly around toward the chaplain with a look of morose impatience. Words gushed from the chaplain in a nervous torrent. Sir, I would like your permission to take the matter to General Dreedle. I want to bring my protests to wing headquarters. Colonel Corn's thick, dark jowls inflated unexpectedly with a suppressed guffaw, and it took him a moment to reply. That's all right, Padre, he answered with mischievous merriment, trying hard to keep a straight face. You have my permission to speak to General Dreedle. Thank you, sir. I believe it only fair to warn you that I think I have some influence with General Dreedle. It's good of you to warn me, Padre, and I believe it only fair to warn you that you won't find General Dreedle at wing. Colonel Corn grinned wickedly and then broke into triumphant laughter. General Dreedle is out, Padre, and General Peckham is in. We have a new wing commander. The chaplain was stunned. General Peckham? That's right, chaplain. Have you got any influence with him? Why, I don't even know General Peckham, the chaplain protested wretchedly. Colonel Corn laughed again. That's too bad, chaplain, because Colonel Cathcart knows him very well. Colonel Corn chuckled steadily with gloating relish for another second or two and then stopped abruptly. And by the way, Padre, he warned coldly, poking his finger once into the chaplain's chest. The jig is up between you and Dr. Stubbs. We know very well he sent you up here to complain today. Dr. Stubbs? The chaplain shook his head in baffled protest. I haven't seen Dr. Stubbs, Colonel. I was brought here by three strange officers who took me down into the cellar without authority and questioned and insulted me. Colonel Corn poked the chaplain in his chest once more. You know damn well Dr. Stubbs has been telling the men in his squadron they didn't have to fly more than 70 missions. He laughed harshly. Well, Padre, they do have to fly more than 70 missions because we're transferring Dr. Stubbs to the Pacific. So adios, Padre. Adios. Now, I, in the middle of that, I thought we might be seeing the last of the chaplain. It's not about seeing the last of him. It's just chaotic and confusing because... I mean, they're they're absolutely rude, but the big thing is that it's just, what the heck is going on? Well, and the thing is, these people seem to be winning Peckham's now in power. Yeah, but it's just chaos. Yep. And they're I'm like, I like, it's like, oh, I don't know how we're going to write that one, one up and make ourselves look good. It's like, mm. What? Yeah, it's it's pretty horrendous, and I don't know how what what the chaplain's going to do. It's a mess. Uh he he was so close to actually standing up for himself, and then he was thrown for a loop, as he said. What was it? It was like um, a, a moral incoherence. I think the word, the phrase was. Yeah, yeah. It's just the mor- moral, lod- immoral logic. Yeah. Yeah, just, it's just everywhere, everyone's doing the wrong thing, and they're all getting away with it. And meanwhile, you know, like Nate Lee is dead. Yeah, and the, he was uh, trying to do the right thing. The the chaplain, uh, sorry, the chapter hammered that home again and again in the opening parts of the chapter. And Nate Lee was dead. Yeah, and the thing that's getting to me is that so technically, Osarian got the chaplain into hot water mm. by signing the chaplain's name onto the letter mm. and because Yossarian's handwriting is the one of um, Washington Irvin. Yeah. And you see the chaplain noticed his handwriting, but decided he was going to cover for. Yeah. Which is good. Mm. But then you've got the poor chaplain. That scene. Just, mm. What the heck? It, it, it really, 
it felt especially where it is in the book you know we're we're in in the end game now it really felt like room 101 yeah yeah pretty much it was just really bad and um it just there's no like it's, it's just chaotic and and not like there's no logic, which is I guess the immoral logic that you. It, it was it was very stupid, wasn't it? it? It was. It's not that I. I don't. It just made no sense. There was no logic to it. There's, it made no sense, and. I, I mean, I mean, so much so that I, you know, I I laughed a little in that, and we haven't really laughed for a while in the book. But yeah, yeah. it was just so ridiculous, just messy. Yeah, I'm actually wondering what's going to happen next because I think. Well, actually, that's a point because yeah, they they charged him guilty with no real evidence. That was a complete sham. And then yeah. when it came time to punish him, I mean, the whole the whole thing was there made it look like they were going to beat him to death or something as heinous. And then there's just like, you know what? No, you can go now. And he's just like, what? Yeah, it it was just to torture him somehow. I don't know. It's a weird situation, and I want to know what's happening next because I saw the title of the next chapter, which is General Shyskopf, and I'm going, um, yeah, I saw like that a good too. Idea. So he's um he's Peckham's right hand man, or at least he's in Peckham's employ. Last time we saw him, yeah, he's special services, I think. So uh, yeah, it's like how the heck is Peckham just that bad? The Shyskopf gets elevated immediately. Yeah, I, I need to know what happens. <laughs> Thank you. And and if Shyskov gets made general, well, you know parades are coming back. Yep. If he doesn't send the officers back who've done... The, the fact that the, these missions, it's going to, on paper, it'll be very clear that they've been flying more missions than anyone else. Colonel Cathcart's group, so... Yep. Leading to many deaths. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking that uh, if he does become, you know, head of... The wing headquarters. <laughs> this operation's finally got a shithead at the helm. <laughs> well, it's accurate. <laughs> yeah. And he's not going to like um, Cathcart. Uh, look, he's not going to like anyone that interrupts his parades. That's true. He's the only thing. And actually, Cathcart might be able to ingratiate himself with him by actually... Uh, just doing parades. Mm-hmm. Not fighting, just parades. Yeah. Because... Well, I don't know how adaptable Cathcart is in terms of being a kiss ass. Corn seems more adaptable in that. Corn's just wherever the wind is blowing. Mm. No, he yeah. he see he seems to be very much able to um, uh, make good no matter what's happening. Probably why Milo didn't go to him. Hmm. Because Corn would take over Milo's operation and actually be effective at it, whereas Cathcart's incompetent. Hmm. But mind you, even a competent person, you know, when Milo is going through all the buying and selling he has to do, it's absolutely ridiculous. No, but no, but Corn would just take over and then do what he wanted. True, true. Why? Why should we do things the old way? I've got, I've got the power now. Yeah, he's he's power hungry. But yes, please, General Shaskov, please continue. I need to know. Oh, you want to do one more chapter? Yes. Ah, I understand. Okay. Yep. Sure. Sure. Chapter 37, General Shyskov. Dreidel was out, and General Peckham was in, and General Peckham had hardly moved inside General Dreidel's office to replace him when his splendid military victory began falling to pieces around him. 
General Shyskov, he inquired unsuspectingly of the sergeant in his new office, who brought him word of that order that had come in that morning. You mean Colonel Shyskov, don't you? No, sir, General Shyskov. He was promoted to general this morning, sir. Well, that's certainly curious. Shyskov, a general, what grade? Lieutenant general, sir, and lieutenant general. Yes, sir, and he wants you to issue no orders to anyone in your command without first clearing them through him. Well, I'll be damned, mused General Peckham with astonishment, swearing aloud for perhaps the first time in his life. Cargill, did you hear that? Shyskov was promoted way up to lieutenant general. I'll bet that promotion was intended for me and they gave it to him by mistake. Colonel Cargill had been rubbing his sturdy chin reflectively. Why is he giving orders to us? General Peckham's sleek, scrub, distinguished face tightened. Yes, Sergeant, he said slowly with an uncomprehending frown. Why is he issuing orders to us if he's still in special services and we are in combat operations? That's another change that was made this morning, sir. All combat operations are now under the jurisdiction of special services. General Shyskopf is our new commanding officer. General Peckham let out a sharp cry. Oh my God, he wailed, and all his practical composure went up in hysteria. Shyskopf in charge! Shyskopf! He pressed his fists down on his eyes with horror. Cargill, get me Wintergreen! Shyskopf! Not Shyskopf! All phones began ringing at once. A corporal ran in and saluted. Sir, there is a chaplain outside to see you with news of an injustice in Colonel Cathcart's squadron. Send him away, send him away. We've got enough injustices of our own. Where's Wintergreen? Sir, General Shyskopf is on the phone. He wants to speak to you at once. Tell him I haven't arrived yet. Good Lord, General Peckham screamed as though struck by the enormity of the disaster for the first time. Shyskopf? The man's a moron. I walked all over that blockade, and now he's my superior officer. Oh, my lord. Cargo, Cargo, don't desert me. Where's Wintergreen? Sir, I have an ex-Sergeant Wintergreen on your other telephone. He's been trying to reach you all morning. General, I can't get Wintergreen, Colonel Cargill shouted. His line is busy. <laughs> General Peckham was perspiring freely as he lunged for the other telegram. Wintergreen, Peckham, you son of a bitch. Wintergreen, have you heard what they've done? What have you done, you stupid bastard? They put Shyskopf in charge of everything. Wintergreen was shrieking with rage and panic. You and your goddamn memorandums. They've gone and transferred combat operations to special services. Oh no, moaned General Peckham. Is that what did it? My memoranda? Is that what made them put Shyskopf in charge? Why didn't they put me in charge? Because you weren't in special services anymore. You transferred out and left him in charge. Do you know what he wants? Do you know what that bastard wants us all to do? Sir, I think you'd better talk to General Shyskopf, pleaded the sergeant nervously. He insists on speaking to someone. Cargill, talk to Shyskopf for me. I can't do it. Find out what he wants. Colonel Cargill listened to General Shyskopf for a moment and went white as a sheet. Oh my God, he cried as the phone fell from his fingers. Do you know what he wants? He wants us to march. He wants everybody to march. Well, that was a very short chapter. Hmm. Yeah. That's going to be chaotic. <laughs> well, it, it gives me a small amount of pleasure knowing that for all their machinations, uh, they it ended up, up on the bottom. Blew up in their face, yeah. Mm. But, but I do find that funny where obviously they're taking his um, orders as they want us to march over the lines. They want us to advance on the enemy when no, no, Shyskop just wants his parades. Oh, God. Um, yeah, that's, that's going to go well. 
That's shocking. <laughs> uh, it's it's good you asked about this chapter because it was so short and it quite quite an amusing way to end. It's funny. It's like a comeuppance and like mm-hmm. going you you just outmaneuvered yourself. Yep. Uh, mistake. Mistake. Yep. Oh dear. Um, yeah, that's going to be an interesting situation. I, I'm trying to think of what's going to happen in terms of the, the dynamics. Well, the weird thing I found there is that Wintergreen was so mad. He hates Beckham. I think that Wintergreen is, yeah. I wonder how much Wintergreen has been trying to manipulate things as well. Mm, that, that's quite likely because he we, we've gotten hints throughout the book about how he's like the man you talk to when you want things done. Yeah, and, and whether he is actually, his role is actually what it, mm. what, yeah, whether he might be actually um, working in a different capacity. Mm. I wonder if he was the, the one with no insignia. Hmm. I want to know who that is. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, that's going to be the question of who who is the person who is doing all that. Or it was just one of the CID men. It's another option. Likely. But yeah, it's it's chaotic and crazy and yeah. hard. Yeah. That, was, that was kind of chaos from two fronts there, those two chapters. It's just, yeah, it's all over the place. And then you've got, like, the deaths, and that's not being dealt with, and that hasn't been written up. And when it gets written up, it's also going to make Peckham look bad. Mm-hmm. Because he was in charge when it happened, I mm. think. Oof. Unless Dreedle was removed because of it. That's another option. Mm. Actually, that would make more sense. If Dreedle was removed because of the, the collision. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that was the Because that, that also came right off the heels of the Washington Samson. And yep. or. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. And it's mo- mostly, honestly, it's all of it is because they're not controlling Gathcart. Mm-hmm. And... But also, some, I, I I imagine yeah. it's very easy to like throw the uh, the blame at Dreidel's feet because oh look at him he he doesn't know what's happening he's an old drunk yeah but also the next question comes up is didn't uh, Yesarian really I wonder how much Yesarian contributed to the whole situation as well because you've got Cathcart who's extremely insecure Corn who's just not with it mm. or well Corn's manipulative so and such. And both of them have a have a have a need to be the smartest person in the room, even when they're not. Mm. Same with Wintergreen. Yes. And I want to know what happened with um, Clevenger and all that. Like it, it, it feels like there's more than just. I wonder how much uh, Yasarian brings out also these things in them, but also arguably Yasarian is to blame for all of this stuff continuously escalating because. Dobbs was willing to get rid of, quote-unquote, get rid of the problem. Well, can we really blame Yasarian for not wanting to murder a man in cold blood? Well, no, but it's not exactly cold blood there now, is it? <sighs> it was in terms of the number of other deaths that were already on the mind. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that Yasarian... It's a trolley be- problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a case of... Yes, and I think that's what it is. It's like a... I mean, neither in neither situation is, is appropriate, but... And I think that, well, Dobbs is dead now, so it's not like he can blame Yossarian, but I can tell you, if Dobbs had come back from that flight, mm-hmm. chances are Yossarian, he would have killed Yossarian. Uh They would have had at least a punch-up or words. I imagine that would have been quite the yeah. uh, the conflict. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the whole... I don't know. 
I guess Ysarin has that certain level of cowardice in his behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Well, he's been up front the whole time. It's like, I don't want to fight hell. If I remember, he joined because he thought the war would be over by the time he got through training. And yeah, part yeah. of the, the joke, I guess, where he was training, if I remember, they were kind of fast-tracking them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got sent even though they weren't ready. And I think the incidents that he contributed to with the parades... Because didn't he was he didn't faint during the parade, but he ended up in hospital was, multiple was, times. Was it him or Clevenger that that? Well, Clevenger caused an issue, but the the fact that Ysarian was in and out of the hospital a lot. It's you know that 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 chapter going back to the cadet school with Shadskov and his parade seems like an eternity ago. It does, it does. But I'm just thinking that I wonder how much of it... And also, he was sleeping with uh, Shaiskopf's yes. wife. So how much of the the fast-tracking was because he, the, you know, Shaiskopf was trying to get rid of him as well. Mm, could be. And because he was with Nurse uh, Debbie D- D- Does, mm. was with Nurse Does, whom, whom uh, Shaiskopf also wanted. But there was also that offhanded remark by two other officers how, like, everyone sleeps with Shyskopf's wife. Yeah, but I think that there's a lot of weird stuff going on that could have been problematic. It's like a Gordian knot of awful. Yes, pretty much. But I'm wondering how much the behavior of those folks actually contributed to things kind of... Like, you know, the, the, the butterfly wings? Mm-hmm. Butterfly flaps its wings, and there's a hurricane in the other end of the world. Like it's all contributing to each other, all entangled. Well, you know, so going back to our conversation right at the start of the podcast, uh, I mean, I also kind of believe in that as well—the idea that the smallest interaction or the smallest thing can have a large ripple effect. We don't even no, know sure. what our actions or or words or even the the most innocuous thing we do each day, how that ripples outward. Mm-mm-mm. to something larger because if any of us had the capacity to understand that we'd probably go mad yes the extreme vastness of all the interconnected steps mm-hmm. that exist in reality it's, it's a lot but yes but in the meantime i am now boiling in my room because <laughs> it's either a fever or it's so not yeah. not boiling with indignation no just, that, that uh, anyway but just like oh um, okay, yeah. Well, we, we thank you for joining uh, us for another episode of So Many Books, So Little Time. We hope you enjoyed it. You got two chapters today. One was very short, uh, but uh, that that shortness was also kind of some much-needed levity after uh, quite an intense chapter. There was a little bit of like, you know, well, you just built yourself a problem from your own actions. Oh, if it isn't the consequences because, of my own actions. Yeah, you outmaneuvered yourself. Um, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, but until next time, folks, at the start of the podcast, the music is Soap Runs. It's by Rupert Gregson Williams and Harry Gregson Williams. It's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. At the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can find me at Rue McMoo. That's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. On Twitter, you can find our podcast on Twitter and Facebook with SMBSLT Podcast. And if you add at gmail.com, you get our email address. Your feedback and suggestions are always welcome, and um, we look forward to hearing from you. And if you're listening anywhere where you can rate or review, we would appreciate that as well. But 
Until next time, I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you're enjoying your reading. And see you next time.